0: This is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is John Danzer, the founder of outdoor furniture brand Munder Skiles. John has always approached his work with an academic rigor. He spent years researching and lecturing on the history of garden furniture before making a single piece. Now he produces a full collection and does his own outdoor design work for clients on the side. Albert Hadley called him the first exterior decorator. Every conversation with John is an education. I spoke with him about the surprising history of Teak, taking design inspiration from Thomas Jefferson, and the speech that made him drop everything, switch careers, and follow his passion. This podcast is sponsored by SideDoor. SideDoor offers brands and designers a simpler way to become more profitable. The technology is transformative. Through SideDoor's easy-to-use, curated collection tools, you'll have access to products from the top trade brands without having to worry about order minimums. And you'll put about 30% of each sale right in your pocket. Designers are tastemakers in their community and online and your clients should buy directly from you, not generic e-commerce sites. Side Door makes this easy. Use Side Door's simple and transparent digital tool to create a collection and share it with your clients and on your website and social media. Request free access now at onsidedoor.com. That's onsidedoor.com. This podcast is also sponsored by by Morin Giles. Founded in 1933 in Lynchburg, Virginia, Morin Giles is dedicated to designing and developing the most innovative and luxurious natural leathers for the high-end hospitality, aviation, automotive, and residential interior design industries. They also craft a collection of luxury leather bags and accessories as an additional avenue to showcase the inherent beauty and timeless appeal of their natural leathers. Visit com slash leather to learn more about their collection of leathers and how they can help you with your next project. That's moreandgiles.com slash leather. And now, on with the show. So childhood years were in Baltimore in a little bit outside of the city, right?
1: Yeah, a little bit outside the city and then we went into you know, a suburban area so that we could walk to school. Mm. But, you know, our gardens were always kept perfectly by me. <laughs> I really enjoyed doing it. And then I, <laughs> I, I started a Adam and Eve lawn service company when I was about 14, which taught me to be responsible. And I think I was probably a closet landscape architect <laughs> at
0: heart. <laughs> well, and you thought about pursuing landscape architecture. I
1: sure did. But I got swept up in art history you know, I spent a lengthy time in Rome with Trinity College and then on to mm. Skidmore College, where I graduated. And I was kind of didn't know which way to go at that point. And then
0: what made you decide to? Got to, to swept leave? up
1: in a need to move to New York. You know, I got to New York and I started working in economic modeling. And I worked in it successfully for quite a long time until I was 37 years old. And I was transferred to London, where I did spend extended periods of time in France, Japan, Frankfurt, um, and was there for six, seven years. But I knew that that was not going to be my complete destiny. And I loved observing it all, but I knew it wasn't really me. So my weekends, I spent lots of time at Clifton Little Venice, you know, listening and learning from Peter Hone, um, who ran the building that was housing garden furniture and statuary, where Bunny Williams and David Easton and all these people would go. So I got a taste of what these designers were doing and that they were searching the world for quality. And so that's where I got the bug. For sure.
0: There's this wonderful story of of what sort of made you make the big transition and, and, and sort of leave all, all, all together. Tell us about that.
1: Frances Foster, who was a neighbor of mine, I had a little farmhouse in Old Chatham, New York. I was always in communications with her, and she was a children's book editor. And she knew I wasn't very happy. And that same year, Leo Leone gave the talk at the Cooper Union and it was called The Irresistible Urge to Make Things. And it's a five-page document. It's brilliant. And it just really shocked me. And it shocked me so much that I quit my job two days later, you know, going to my fabulous French boss and said, I don't want to be in finance ever again. I've got to figure this out. And I had an inkling it might be something to do with, with gardens, for sure, or design. I knew that. But I didn't really know until i traveled for a long time and a dear friend of mine katie law she said send me back your film remember pictures you took pictures Mm. with film (laughs) and she wrote a post-it note and i keep it in my design studio and it said it's funny all you do is take pictures of gardens and garden furniture and i thought you know what that's it that's what i'm going to do
0: well just to explain for for listeners yep. who who don't know who who Leo Leone is, who's who's a famous illustrator and and children's author, how was it that he was giving? I, I think it was the commencement speech or something, right? Yeah,
1: the commencement speech at the Cooper Union. Yes, at the in Cooper New York. Union.
0: And so he was giving this speech and then it sort of got written up as... Oh, it as, got printed right.
1: and circulated. And, you know, she sent me a copy of it and said, you know, think about this, you know.
0: And what what did it say? And it sounds like you were so moved by it that you literally sought out this man and, and went to see him.
1: Well, he grew up in Tuscany. You mm. know, his real love was the energy of New York City and how you need to just really pay attention and to bring things into the world... That have a philosophy it's just not stuff. Um, mm. he was very clear about that, and the connections between making art or making a product that might even be quite commercial <laughs> that they needed to all have the same constraints and importance in the way you work at it so. So anybody who calls me, I share it <laughs> because we've typed, we've typed it up. It's required reading in our
0: office. Well, so so it had such a such an impact on you, yeah. And sure. and as we say, you 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 literally decide to. Uh, you, you, you were terribly successful. I mean, you sort of downplay your, your your financial career, but I mean, you were you were obviously quite quite successful and 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 quite a good uh, researcher and, and analyst, but. Yet you hear this talk and, and say, this is it. I I have another calling and I'm going to go pursue it. And I'm going to go and introduce myself to this Leo Leone fellow. Yep. And, and-
1: so I headed right to his house and spent at least a week there. Um, his wife didn't know why i had arrived. <laughs> I <I'd laughs> talked to him, but um, boy, generous. And, and just to be around that spirit of somebody who was so involved in the art world and publishing world and seeing his office with just riddled with paper, but he knew where everything was. And, Mm. you know, it was wonderfully insane. And his brain was so clear about what, you know, he wanted to do every day. And I didn't understand the finance world after a while. It just seemed like it was a lot of it wasn't factual based. It was a lot of perception. I think it's going to happen this way. Well, so what? (laughs) Yeah. So there was something really grounded. Um, I felt he was very satisfied as a person. So that, that experience led me to understand that I could in fact do something with furniture. And I realized I couldn't go back to school. There's no way at 37, it was impossible. I'd, So I sent myself to my own school. I was financially okay. And so Mm -hmm. I really spent the next year and a half to two years studying the history of garden furniture and gave my first lecture at the Cooper Hewitt with David McFadden coaching me. who was a major curator there. And he introduced me to Jack Larson, who then gave me a stipend for doing the research, which I gave back Mm. to the museum. And so that was the kickoff of, you know, knowing it. So it kind of mixed my art history background. You know, I hadn't made anything. I was just lecturing. So, but I discovered all these things like Thomas Jefferson designed garden benches and George Washington designed fruit tree boxes and Edith (laughs) Wharton did this. And it was just fascinating to me
0: so, so, you had done all this research, and you were eager to to share it and this was this was what sure. your lectures were in the in the early days i mean you you joked with me uh, the other day that they yeah. were they were long and and dry a oh bit, my God but...
1: <laughs> dry boring as hell, but factual I mean i eighteen thirty six my favorite was when I gave the talk at the Victorian Albert, just boring as hell. This man walks up to me and says that painting was eighteen thirty six not eighteen thirty seven.
0: Oh, my goodness. And I was
1: just like, oh, perfect. Well,
0: So tell me, you were just saying you, you hadn't made anything yet. And, and you, so you'd done all this research. You sort of discovered, was was Thomas Jefferson, was he interested in garden spaces and, and furniture? And I mean, tell me what you learned.
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, look at his house. Every entry is a grand entry to the out of doors. Hmm. His windows, you know, his triple hung windows were all about going outside. Everything he did was about integrating the indoors and outdoors. And, you know, he designed furniture. The leather in those days was not petrochemically treated. It was like what you have on a saddle. And then horsehair was put inside the, the stuffing. It wasn't foam. <laughs> so they considered that outside upholstery. Right. Um, So it wasn't just his benches that were welcoming benches by the front door, Mm. but it was integrated in everything he did. And so these were the great lessons that were learned and ergonomically, brilliantly done (laughs) Um, so that they were, you know, um, well thought out. And certainly in Thomas Jefferson's case, extremely well thought out.
0: So carry that through. So you, you you do learn all of this, and you're obviously heavily influenced by it, and, and and impacted by what you've read. How do you take the next steps towards sort of forming a a company around all of this?
1: Well, I think the first thing I you know I probably didn't say was. When I was at Clifton Little Venice, I was also a very good client <laughs> because <laughs> I basically decorated my apartment with garden furniture. Is that right? Yeah, it was all decorating garden furniture. And so I, I also realized that they, were, they said to me that when I moved from London, that they had to bring me back to America with everything I owned. <laughs> So McGraw Hill Corporation sent a 40 foot container. I went (laughs) shopping at Sotheby's Christie's, which had special sales of garden ornament and sculpture. And I bought some Gothic tables and I bought, you know, frames of wing chairs because the frames of furniture are very good ideas of skeletons for the Mm. structure of a piece of furniture. So, I went shopping, and I shoved, <laughs> Sounds like. I shoved it all into a big barn in Old Chatham, and then headed across the river to Socrates where i I worked with one guy who was a carpenter, but he was also a um, chiropractor and trainer and so okay. um I had him build some of the first pieces, and then we decided to build an ergonomic chair from scratch, so that was the first time with a team of people. I did anything that would be considered slightly original because everything hmm. else was basically copying pieces from history that I really admired and thought could be used and reimagined into our day-to-day now. You know, in those days, Smith & Hawkins was the big design, you know, right. and now yeah. we look at that and we how expressive garden furniture is today. It's extraordinary what's happened. When I first started, there were only, I could not name 35 companies. That's 30 years ago. And now I'm up to 327 companies selling garden furniture in America.
0: How did that first happen? How did it get started? What, what, what was the genesis of, of that?
1: You know, the, the, the top designers were sneaking over to England and France. And it was a big deal in probably, I'm going to say, the early 90s. You know, Sotheby's had a full sale for two days of garden statuary and furniture. So that started sort of a a motion to that, I think. You know, I think that as the more we traveled, Mm. you know, obviously it was just sitting there became part of our snapshots. (laughs) Like, wow, they sit outside in a cafe and look at what (laughs) they're sitting in. It just evolved as the world got smaller. I mean, we know how much we've been traveling. (laughs) Yeah. And certainly, you know, when I did a lecture, the whole thing was exciting. It's like, oh, my God, look at this, look at this, you know. And I spent time in Japan, and so I knew about Japanese stools, and I throw that into the lecture, (laughs) you know. And those stool designs are certainly what influenced – christian liegra in the shape of his furniture and, and now you see it everywhere you see it at teak warehouses got you know shapes that are very much like that from japanese you know stools and so it's all kind of evolved we're all jumping in it's all mushed up
0: <laughs> we're taking a quick break to remind designers about and giles leather the world's leading leather developer Moran Giles is dedicated to designing the most innovative and luxurious natural leathers for the high-end hospitality, aviation, automotive, and residential interior design industries. They also craft a collection of luxury leather bags and accessories as an additional avenue to showcase the inherent beauty and timeless appeal of their natural leathers. Visit morangiles.com leather to learn more about their collection of leathers and how they can help with your next project. That's morangiles.com slash leather. And how how was it that teak was the material of choice for so much of that? I mean, obviously, it holds up well. And how did that sort of become the... Well, the the, real
1: story is, you know, that the Belgians were the first to actually go into areas of Indonesia, places like that, Grabbing spices and all different kinds of vegetables and fruits they couldn't get from there, and they discovered the teak trees there where it is native and they realized it was insect resistant, so they did the decks of their boats. Then the English did it, and then they came back. And then when they would scrap them, they'd have strips, therefore, that's why we have slats hmm. and those. Several companies got contracts to do benches for the towns, okay? So that's where you see those very, very, you know, comfortable but simple benches. You see that Smith & Hawkins then, you know, pulled that design. And that was usually just recycled stuff from the boat decks. But teak is a brilliant wood. It has a natural oil to it. It rises to the surface, it weathers well, and it's, you know, it grows extremely slowly. A full-size tree is 80 years. We hmm. don't cut anything before 40, 45. We know exactly how tall they usually get. Trees, you know, get to a limit and stop. <laughs> it also got to be known, and where we produce, is that it was an excellent shader for coffee. If coffee was shaded half day, it would be less bitter. It's a much sought after product, (laughs) Hmm. but you know, it has a long, wonderful history really does. And it's so durable. We have pieces here that are 26 years old sitting in our place that we clean every year with a brush, Hmm. but it's very successful as a wood that, you know, just keeps giving, (laughs) you know, beautifully silver when it's um, done. And, you know, of course boats, there's a, you know, a lot of it connects to boat joinery. We use a lot of, boat joinery concepts in our furniture because it's brilliant.
0: Well, and so tell me more about that, the joinery and and some of the things that you learned from...
1: Well, one piece, this Gothic piece that I bought at Sotheby's, I couldn't understand the joinery and I recognized that it actually was Japanese joinery at the corners. And it was like a knuckle. It sort of embraced into each other and you almost didn't need glue. (laughs) Hmm. but you had to be so precise to make it and just the way you know things are plugged you know um grain direction all those things I wanted to get really deep into that i really love all that because i did produce in america but about 23 years ago i started producing in costa rica and that had literally to do with trying to get FSE certified wood that i could get at a decent price by the time it gets to america because these countries tax it so heavily it was up to $15 a board foot. Whereas if you became a value added producer, you could get it for about 575 a board foot. Uh, so that was a much more acceptable thing. And, I, and also I couldn't find people who are willing to learn these oddball things I wanted to learn. So, <laughs> and I wanted it to be close by. So we went to Costa Rica because I can fly there in four and a half hours. I didn't want to have to fly to Indonesia and I go every month.
0: Every every month to Costa Rica.
1: Yeah. I'm not doing it as much now as I age, but, uh, you know, and I let the pandemic change that for me.
0: (laughs) But for many years, that was your your routine. Yeah.
1: Every month I would go, and the first years I would go 17, 18 times a year. Gladly, happily. I'm just mad for the workers in Costa Rica. They're my people. As I think I said to you, it's the thing I'm the most proud of is the work that we do there and who, who they are. They're just, they're so um, attached to what they do and they get so excited when I send them a photograph from a glossy magazine or it's, or a prominent historic house that I've just, you know, we delivered something to and you send them photographs. They're just ecstatic. They have great work satisfaction, something I really want people to have. If they're going to have a job, enjoy it, damn it. (laughs) You (laughs) know, (laughs) it takes up a lot of time. It really does
0: it does and it, and it and it sounds like like you've had a lot of people who have been there for a long time and and sort yeah. of generationally yeah. grown, grown up there i want to go back to just to to hear some of the stories of the the early days of you coming up with some pieces some of you taking the leap from all that you had learned through your research and if i remember correctly you sort of put a small catalog together with with some pieces and <laughs> and we're sort of showing things in your manhattan Apartment in the in the early days, yes? sure,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. The the office was my apartment, <laughs> five hundred and sixty two square feet. Yep, with furniture hanging on the walls. But you know, I just I hit the road. I had not really traveled too much in America, so I would drive all the way through the South into Texas. And but I went to you know I went to Monticello, and I said, listen, hmm. I I know where the drawings are. I've gone to see them in Boston, and I've got a copy of them in front of me, and. I don't believe that these are quite right and could I make you a pair of them and get them in front of the place? I mean, how could they resist and how could I not do that? I needed to learn and this was my University of Garden Furniture.
0: <laughs> so you thought the ones that they had weren't quite right in terms of what they were intended to be?
1: No, they were, they were just different and I didn't think the workmanship was right there. So off we went. But okay. I did the same thing. I went to the Dumbarton Oaks and I asked to see the drawings of Beatrice Farron and the furniture. And I walked in and they were on a pile on the floor. And I said, excuse me, this is crazy. I organized them. And I said, I'm going to go buy you a file cabinet. And I bought a file cabinet, <laughs> laid them out, took pictures the whole time, of course. And I started making their beautiful oval table that was at the tennis court. Because theirs had been started to be chewed on by the squirrels because it's the Dunbar and Oaks. The Oaks are <laughs> attracting the squirrels. <laughs> the the squirrels started chewing the furniture. So off I went. So, you know, and then it was a chair. And now we, by the time, in, in two years, we will have rebuilt every piece of furniture at the Dunbar and Oaks. But they didn't have to, like, ask me.
0: <laughs> I had to tell <laughs> it them. It sounds like they couldn't stop you. No, it they couldn't stop like
1: you. No, no. I was there <laughs> permanently. <laughs> you know, that, that gets you on the map. Um, and it's sure. own right. you know. And, you know, so I did put out this ridiculous catalog. It had, you <laughs> know, it had one taconic chair, ergonomic chair, but no dining table. It had a folding Coaching table that I'd bought at Christopher Howe in London. That he and I made a deal that I could copy it if I put a thousand pounds into his daughter's college fund. <laughs> <laughs> then I had the of uh, the That's Gothic nice tables agreement. from Sotheby's that I copied, and I had them on display or hanging on the walls in my apartment. And I, here we go, and sent the catalog off to. But I had to find out who the decorators even were. There wasn't an AD one hundred. You know, that didn't exist. I mean, I had books like Gardening by Mail, (laughs) you know, and things like that. So it was all very uh, innocent, you know. It was a different world. It wasn't all information piled into your face. You had to go get it.
0: So you had to figure out who these designers were, and then you somehow figured out how to send them your catalog.
1: Yes, yep. Mm -hmm.
0: And then, lo and behold, some some designers of note show up at your apartment. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Well, the first was John Saladino who, you know, loves gardens. And if he got into a house, mm. he was going to do the whole thing. You know, he it's the way he worked. And it was thrilling. Yeah, I, I think I told you that one of the chairs that I'd made, he said, there's a big problem. He said, hand me some phone books. He said, put those underneath the two front legs. Let's get the slant of this chair correct. Mm. He said, John, you need to understand chairs like people who like wine understand grapes. You need to know that. And he was so brilliant that way and willing to give it. And then Albert Hadley, who you know would go to the opening of anything. He was always at every lecture, every opening of everything. He was just, you know, he was available to everyone. I think that was was his biggest power. And so kind that way. And we said, you need to come lecture in Nashville, which I did. And we went shopping together and found a chair And we had no idea who did this chair. He said, I want some of those. So I said, "Well, okay, they're called the Hadley chair. And it (laughs) turned out to be a very well-known Rene Gabrielle chair from France. And it was diminutive like him. And he had it. And when he passed away and it was sold up in Hudson, New York, I bought the two originals back that I made for him. (laughs) Oh. Yeah, so I have them in my piles of furniture in a barn <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> well and it sounds like he was sort of a lifelong customer yes. and influence and teacher really and-
1: really important i went up to connecticut all the time and he was always introducing you to other people you know encouraging you to keep doing things like that i always liked i guess it was thomas jefferson's you know, it was abraham lincoln's line to, um we make a team of rivals <laughs> Mm. I learned in finance, enemies become friends to make it a larger business. Mm. So I've always felt that way. And Albert was the one who said, John, you have a sensibility about landscape and about furniture that you're really an exterior decorator. So I just grabbed that word and opened a company then called the exterior decorator. And that really excited me because that way I wasn't restricted by exactly what I made. I've done whole houses and bought them from competitors. You know, I just bought, you know, six chairs from CB2. (laughs) You know, I buy pottery from people. I buy all kinds of things. And I really enjoy that, you know. Um, And I think that's where I will end up.
0: So ultimately working as an exterior decorator. that's, That's really what you want to do.
1: And where I found my mark was with landscape designers and landscape architects who don't know as much about the furnishings but wanted Mm. their projects to look sharp and they wanted the furniture to really fit, you know, you got to go inside and look outside and see how it fits and how does this furniture lure you into the outside without being visually confusing or disruptive or in the way and you know, that kind of stuff. But also I have a lot of really nice clients who are just avid gardeners who want garden furniture And they don't Mm. have a decorator. They don't have a landscape architect, but they need something. And that's been thrilling. I love being on site. That's what I want.
0: Hello, listeners. Dennis Scully here. I'm excited to announce that my favorite event of the year is back. Business of Homes Future of Home Conference is taking place in person this fall, September 13th and 14th it will be two days of lively discussions with leaders of the industry about how businesses can turn high demand into meaningful growth, how the pandemic has shifted consumer behavior and psychology, and how we can continue to inspire our clients and inspire ourselves. I'll be hosting, and I promise it's going to be great fun. Get your tickets now at futureofhome.com. And of course, a special thank you to our sponsors, the Crate and Barrel CB2 Trade Program, High Point Market Authority, Benjamin Moore, Hunter Douglas, Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams, Afterpay, Pinterest, Kohler, Callista, Ann Sachs, Roburn, Universal Furniture, Krypton, and EQ3. I can't wait to see you there. And so take me a little bit into that process. So you, I know you love to be on site and, and, you, and you really want to see everything and, and then sort of decide. Tell me about that process when you get called in.
1: You know, we get called in and I really say we're not going to do anything. We have to solve problems. There might be terraces that are already built, but they, mm. they say they want to have a table there, but there are limitations. You know, a chair pulled away from a table must be 36 inches if it has arms. To be comfortable. So, if you have a 36 inch table, you need nine feet, <laughs> okay, at minimum. So, people have to think about this. So, it's it really is the program first. What is your program for living outside? So, there's a lot of that has to be thought out first before you even think about design. Because then, if I've got 327 companies to pick from. <laughs> I'm bound to be able to find the right chair for you because you weigh 400 pounds (laughs) and your wife is gorgeous, tall and thin, (laughs) you know, I can figure it out, but you have to size everything up, you know, get the numbers together. Let's be real and let's do it once. Let's not, you know, let's not hurry (laughs) Mm. you know everybody seems to be in such a hurry and when they get there they forget the time they waited to get it you know (laughs) this immediate gratification thing is not something i was raised with and i'm not interested
0: Well, so so tell me about that. Tell me, tell me about how all of these supply chain issues have impact. So uh, the bulk of what you do is coming out of Costa Rica. Yeah, wood and metal comes from
1: Costa Rica. We're launching Wicker Now, which is coming from Vietnam, which is complicated right now. We've got some problems. Our problem currently right now, and I don't mind because I've shared it with all the clients, we're delayed about three weeks. Mm-hmm we have a shortage of wood because we don't have enough kiln space. Um, this is the okay. wet, wet time of the year.
0: Right. You know,
1: the wood has to be in the kilns for about 45 days and we're building a new kiln right away. I don't know in the factory, but we're,
0: <laughs> you're like a big investor. Yeah. Yeah.
1: We're just, I'm the largest client where our hands are clasped together. I adore its owner, Kevin, we're all in it together, you know, yeah. so we have to figure yeah. it out.
0: So you're investing in in a in a bigger kiln a bigger and... kiln,
1: and that's almost finished. the The first this will be the second kiln. You know, these are hot, much larger capacity. We cut the wood before it goes into the kiln for the particular piece.
0: Mm-hmm. So you
1: take it out, and we want it between eight and twelve percent. Meaning what? Moisture rate. Okay, so, got it. So okay, and then what happens is the minute you pull it out in the rainy season of costa rica which is going on right now it's pouring every day it will jump Mm. right up to 18 percent so we store it and it'll drop back down to maybe 14 and before we produce the furniture we stick it back in the oven and then the 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 actual production of the chair is the quickest (laughs) It's all this prep. <laughs>
0: it's all that it's wood drying, all that that takes wood so drying and
1: all this. Go- <laughs> and the the trees are right there. They're right next. So we're going from trees to chairs right there right. on the property. So it's very old-fashioned that way.
0: Well, and it sounds as if that was your opening in this business. In so many ways, you knew so much about the history yep. of of garden furniture, right. and 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 could sort of observe or, or or take notice of what wasn't there. And and this could be your 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 sort of niche business that you sort of snuck in and 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 took the the market share that you that you did eventually. Tell me how you sort of ran this business along sort of two tracks with your desire to be this exterior decorator and and to also build this this furniture company over the years.
1: Well, I think there were a couple of things. A few decorators said, "Could you help? <laughs> I don't do outside." So that that was part of it. And then the more I got press in those days, then people who were interested gardeners would want to come see. Mm. And so it just it kind of melded together, you know, but I didn't want, I want to have a separate company so that people understood that there was the way I charge (laughs) because there's this whole thing of, you know, you need a retail element today. They're going to get to us. (laughs) We're a vendor. (laughs) And if we don't sell enough to the design trade, we, you know, we can supplement that with a few jobs that are retail priced at a different situation. So they pay me to come on site you know i have an hourly rate
0: <laughs> i mean that's a great point and it and it is such an important issue today because you're right homeowners want the access they want these resources and so your solution, it sounds like, is yes, I'll come out and help you. I've got an hourly rate, and then we can talk about what what works in your in your yeah, space. Yeah, and
1: basically. we have a retail price. We have a trade disc. We we're, we just tell everybody what's going on. We're twenty percent off to the trade, and we keep it all clean as a whistle. It's written in our price guide. <laughs> mm-hmm. We have a pricing thing that we. Put out for the exterior decorator you know how much we are per hour for drafting whatever it is what i love about the exterior decorating things i get on site and i just say if you are patient and you like this i have an idea so it's been great for product development hmm. you know i'll get to a site where i just have some inkling that this needs to be that same bench but curved would make a difference and you know Changing something from a rectilinear to a curve is a big deal. <laughs> I am not process illiterate. It is tricky. <laughs> you know, it's really tough. You know, we make things <laughs> and it can take a while. And that's why I like to go every month.
0: Well, and, and, and because you were constantly – Inventing and tinkering, you right. needed to be there all the time, yep. and, and to see how they were coming out. And yep. and it sounds like the inventor mindset was always in your your DNA.
1: I think that's I think it's true. I mean, you know, we go down there with an agenda. I mean, Dave and I work out the agenda because kind of stuff. it's never the agenda. It's what you see when you get down there. Mm. You see a mistake here or something like that, and and them knowing that we control that. And the client who is basically given us money to put out this quote, perfect product, handmade product, you have to, you know, it's, you got to be responsible to it. Just like you had to be responsible to Mrs. Baker to cut her lawn every, <laughs> twice a week. It's the same damn thing. You know, you either on it or you're off it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm on it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you mentioned earlier coming out of Vietnam yep. was, was wicker, but not just wicker. I mean, really this, this sort of new material that you've created over years of trial and error, it, it, it sounds like. So tell me a little bit about that. Cause I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And I, I guess I sat in a chair made of it yep. this, this past weekend and it, it's sort of an amazing material. So, so tell me.
1: Well, it's, it's a material that's been around for a long time. As many people know, the father of the man who started D Don actually created Exterior all-weather wicker, which is a plastic with a tiny bit of foam in the in the center of it. What I really was developing with a company is the exterior look of it, mm. because I found that so much of it was very um, orange. I mean, you, you would see a lot of outdoor wicker furniture that's brown. I just don't like that at all, and I wanted to look at what were the colors of that rattan was painted and what is really natural rattan look like. And it had a bit of gray and it had a bit of beige and a bit of brown and even a bit of orange. So we tried to pick up the colors and then striate it through the product. And then we started looking at, um, scraping the surfaces a bit. So we got a little rough on it. Hmm. So I just wanted to start with the materials and work with that. I mean, it's always about differentiating yourself and I'm a, you know, I'm a complicated guy who really wants to try to <laughs> make it kind of almost perfect in my Germanic way. I don't know. So, we then are producing in Vietnam. That's actually produced in Indonesia, the fiber.
0: Mm, okay. And then
1: we have to ship that to Vietnam. And I found a very rare collection of Pierre Chiraud wicker. And I've, so we, the technology of taking it from, bamboo structure with rattan to aluminum structure and with this all-weather wicker was a lot more complicated than i thought but i think (laughs) we've achieved it and we have launched i'm very excited about it
0: yeah i know it it seems exciting and it It speaks to how you do handle launches and how you do sort of introduce product. It seems like so much of what you do is sort of inventing things for the first time, depending on the project that you're working on versus, I mean, I forget over a hundred and some odd pieces in your, in your line today, right? It's almost two hundred pieces, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and then there are all the variations of colors and change the backs and all this kind of stuff. So it's a very complicated company to manage in some level. But I'm mm. on twenty four seven and will be when I move to Europe. This is a love affair. <laughs> Sorry to say it, you know. but It sounds a little obnoxious, but this is for me. It's it's not work. You know, I, I will do this till I drop. And as long as I can, you know, keep good staff, which is the next thing, <laughs> you know, keep people here for the long term um, and sharing the, the ownership of the company is something we're looking at right now.
0: As a way to in- incentivize people to come and, yes. and and to stay. It sounds like you've done that with Dave. Yep. And... Yeah,
1: we're in, we're in the process of doing that now. It's important. Okay. It's really important for them to know that we're committed to them and vice versa. You know, we need to know that.
0: We're taking a quick break to remind you about a transformative new sales tool called Side Door. First, it's free for qualifying designers and trade brands. Second, instead of settling for the 1 to 3 percent offered by affiliate programs, you have access to your favorite trade brands and you earn on average 30 percent of each sale. Finally, Instead of sending people to other sites and places to spend their money, SideDoor gives you a way to have clients check out directly from you. Best of all, you don't have to deal with any of the fulfillment. The SideDoor team places the order, coordinates the freight, and handles the customer service. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. Sidedoor is a groundbreaking online tool that follows the best practices of our industry and helps designers become more profitable. Request free access at onsidedoor.com. That's onsidedoor.com. And now, back to the show. Well, and what do you want to see happen with the business? So you've talked about you finally uh, years of wanting to and traveling back and forth. You're moving to Spain, and and part of that is is expanding into into Europe uh, a bit more. But also part of it is about just shifting the, the leadership structure. So tell me about that.
1: Yeah. Um, my other half, my husband, um, Chip and mm. is joining the firm. And that's going to bring a lot of management skills and a great background, language skills for sure, (laughs) um, which we're going to need over there. We've had a lot of interest in Europe in our product. There seems to be the interest in the silhouette, the interest Mm. in design, things like that. I think we have a more European sensibility since I studied it so much over there. You know, as I said to you earlier, I think that we want the piece of furniture to be the thing that stands out the most and that cushions are an accessory, not a necessity. When I started the business, there was only benches and they were pretty diminutive. They were even too small for people. But now that we've customized those to the sizes, the benches are basically comfortable. But when I I enter sofas, outdoor sofas, lounging beyond belief... You know, we still shape all those things to to minimize the amount of cushioning because it's a pain in the neck. And they only learn that once they have it. Mm. It's very different outside. And all I ask is, is that, you know, people clean their furniture and, you know, take care of it so you don't have to buy it again.
0: <laughs> well, but that's very much the hope with the yes. kind of furniture that you're making. Right. I mean, right.
1: I mean, my goal is this company has a, kind of a philosophy and a sort of a legacy thing because we really own the control. We own the, not the rights by any means, because we, we don't have the rights to any of this stuff. Um, you know, America's history, you know, as mm. it was told through the European country, mostly through England, you know, so this needs to be documented. So that's my next role. I want to get a book contract. I'm working on it now that this needs to be documented, you know, for posterity because <laughs> it's mother nature destroys it all. And you need to see the piece, understand the piece, and see it in its location. So it's a big task, and that's what I want to try to do now.
0: Well, John, it's a, it's an absolute pleasure to get to speak with you, and I and I thank you so much for for making the time.
1: Thank you so much. You know, I'm a big admirer. I think that this is close to 170, you know, interviews you've done, which is quite impressive.
0: Well, <laughs> I hope it doesn't show in my face. Okay, I know. <laughs>
1: But I do have to say, it's been a great educational piece for my company. And I thank BOH, Business of Home, for for doing this. It's great. Thank you very much. Well,
0: that's very kind. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up with the latest design industry news, visit us online at businessofhome.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, browse job listings, and join our BOH Insider community for access to online workshops, a free print subscription, and much more. If you have a note for the podcast, drop us a line at podcast at businessofhome.com. If you're enjoying these conversations, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps others to discover the show. This show was produced by Fred Nikolaus and Caroline Burke and edited by Michael Castaneda. I'm Dennis Scully. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next week.